welcome to episode 108 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great as well. We had a frost this morning, which you would think that I'd be upset about that, but I'm actually like really looking forward to like crisp, cold, like fall weather. You're into it? I'm into it. I'm totally into it. How long is that going to last? Uh, well, fall weather will last until like the end of October, and then it'll be the eternal winter. It'll be like Narnia out there. <laughs> and then it'll be like 95 degrees in mud season. I actually was asking, how long is that interest going to last for you? <laughs> well, it probably would last longer than the season would if the season was more than like a couple weeks long. We probably so. say this every year, right? But that season in New Hampshire, the fall is like two days. Well, yeah. It's, you, you have and to done. trade off. It's like there's a ratio of beauty to length of good weather. So like it's it's painfully beautiful outside because of the leaves, but you only get that for a week and a half, and then it's winter. You had me at ratio. I love it when you talk mathematics to me. <laughs> I don't do it very often, and most of the time I'm assuming something is wrong with what I'm saying, but... No, that was glorious. That was right yeah. on. Speaking of yeah. which, let's affirm and deny some things, because we haven't done that in a little while. We haven't. Why don't you go first? So this, for me, has been the year, for whatever reason, of reading books that I never would have thought I would read, and okay. it's just because I've gotten kind of randomly connected to some interesting things to read, and so I want to affirm this week a book that has surprisingly been one of the most interesting things I have read all year long. And the book is entitled Why We Sleep. And it's by a guy named Matthew Walker. And this has like totally changed how I understand sleep. And actually, as I was reading it, it just kept leading me to like doxology after doxology for praising God for how amazing he has put us together and what a part, what part sleep plays in that. So wow. if you sleep, you should read this book. It's a, it'll change your view on everything. And it's, I came across it through a blog that I follow and I kind of picked it up just on a whim and it is superbly interesting. So two things that I found super interesting in this book, these are just like fun anecdotal things, but they're, I think, awesome to talk about sleep. First is, I, I knew this, have you heard that like dolphins sleep with like half their brain so they can like keep swimming? I have not. So like I've heard before that like dolphins will let half of their brain sleep. That's the way God's, God's created them so they can keep moving and they can keep breathing and all that good stuff. But apparently birds do that as well. So hmm. birds can actually put one half of their brain to sleep. And if there's a group of birds together such that some can rest their whole brains, but others will stay awake as like sentries on duty. This guy says that basically the birds will line up and roost and the two on the end will let half their brain sleep and the opposite eye will remain open to watch for predators. Wow. <laughs> and then they will switch so that the other half of their brain can sleep and the other eye will stay open so that they can remain alert for any that's kind of harm. Awesome. God is amazing. So that's, that was cool. The second thing that blew me away was that the Guinness Book of World Records, so this is a place you know, that will, will condone all kinds of crazy behavior. They right. will, of course, allow you or condone, I guess, skydiving like outside the Earth's atmosphere, such that you're breaking the sound barrier with your body. That is totally chill with them. However, they refuse to accept any more sleep deprivation records because it's too dangerous. Yeah. I do remember hearing a podcast from the guy who holds it about how like he permanently has, 
he I don't remember how long it was, but it was like in a, it was some multiple days, like almost two weeks, I think. Wasn't it like eleven days or something like that? Yeah, it was crazy amount. Of time. And he has like he permanently cannot sleep correctly anymore. It's like he broke his circadian rhythms. Yes, yeah. It's so this crazy. is wild. This is a great book. It's really interesting. It's got a lot of practical information, but totally blew me away and something that was unexpected. So I cannot affirm more strongly the book "Why We Sleep" by Matthew Walker. Nice. How about you? So I am affirming, as we did last week, uh, Bible translation. So we're not going to like turn this into the advertising for, you know, whatever personal cause we have right now, um, hour, but I do want to just remember that my good friend, uh, Cecil Dietz is joining pioneer Bible translators. Um, he's going to be making a move to Dallas to where their headquarters is soon. Um, but he can't do that until he gets fully funded. So if you have uh, fulfilled your obligation to your local church and you feel so inclined, I would love it if we could help him uh, as a kind of reform brotherhood community to finish out the last probably like 20% of his funding that he has. So that's something that the Lord lays on your heart and you've fulfilled your obligation to your local church. You can go to pioneerbible.org slash Cecil Dietz, and that's C-E-C-I-L. D-I-E-T-Z. Um, and just like most kinds of missionary funding, you can give like a one-time gift or you can set up like a monthly donation, whichever uh, you prefer. But he's he's a really good dude. He's got a beautiful family. Um, he's really passionate about getting God's word into the hands of these um, unscriptured uh, people groups. So if you could help him out, that would be fabulous. Right on. I love that. All right. What about denials, Jesse? What are you denying? I've got a denial that I think is close to your heart as well, Tony, that you're going to be able to really come behind me with. And that is the combination, for whatever reason, of squirrels and pumpkins. Oh, no. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I've got stories. (laughs) So if somebody hasn't experienced this before, in this part of the world, if you throw out, you know, just a nice, glorious, big, juicy pumpkin, you know, like on your stoop, on your step outside... And you live in a place where there are squirrels. Squirrels go crazy. And they were literally burrow holes in any kind of gourd that you put outside. Yeah. And just basically like just take it to town. I've never seen something like this before. Like they really will destroy these things. They'll literally drill a hole in it, get on the inside, haul out all the seeds and just like emaciate the whole thing. You've had this yeah. happen, right? Yeah. We had it happen this year. We had to move our pumpkins inside. I mean, I don't know why Ashley didn't realize this was going to happen, and I told her it was going to happen because this happens every year. But she came home one day, and the squirrel she came, walked up to the steps. And the squirrel was literally still inside the pumpkin. <laughs> and then later in the day, I think I went out to get some food or something. I came back, and the squirrel was on the steps, like shoveling pumpkin guts into its mouth. And I stopped the car and I rolled the window down. I was like, "Hey, hey, squirrel!" And he you just started yelling at, at it. He just looked at me and then continued to shovel food into his mouth. And I was like, these little monsters. No respect. It's no, a really incredible no thing to see. If you have you if you know, I dare someone to try to take dominion over a wild squirrel because <laughs> it just does not happen. They get into everything. I mean, I like squirrels. Yes. I think they're adorable and I think they're really cute little animals. And they they play like a really important role in like the ecology of a system, like something like 30% or 40% of all new trees are planted by squirrels because they forgot where they put the like acorns during the winter. So they, they all these trees crop up because they plant the seeds. So they're almost like pollinators for, um, for trees, but like on a bigger scale. But they are just, they're so stubborn, but they're so smart. They're so much smarter than you think they are. Man, they're, yeah. they're, they're little monsters. 
Yeah, they don't they don't mess around. So if you yeah. if that's the thing is that's kind of what I'm denying, I guess, is if you want to put out, you know, just some nice fall type decorations, especially anything that's like gourd like, these guys will get after it fast. Yeah. They're super resilient too. Yes. So you you're familiar obviously with the the church building, but the the church building that we're in, uh where Ashley and I live, is a three-story building. And each story is probably like one and a half stories for a normal building because it's the stairs are super steep. The each floor is a bit taller than an average building for more modern standards. And I've seen squirrels that will jump off of the rail of the second story balcony down to the ground and they like bounce and they just get up and run away. And I'm like, <laughs> if I jumped from that rail and landed on my face, I would be dead. But these squirrels, they just like get up and walk away and they're fine. It's crazy. Which is amazing when you think about that proportionally. I know. Well, that's probably what it is, is they're not super heavy, so they don't they don't generate a lot of force when they hit the ground. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's crazy. I can't But if, but once again, like if you or I jump from like the proportional height relative right. to their body size, it we we wouldn't be able to survive that either, no matter how no. light we were. Yeah, we would definitely we would definitely die. It's crazy. I didn't think it was gonna get this dark so quickly, yeah. starting with squirrels, but so Take us out of this. What are you denying? So I am denying microphone problems. So yes. several people have graciously messaged us. And it's funny because it's always the same <laughs> message. It's like, you know, I love your show and I'm not sure, uh, you know, maybe it's my, maybe it's my micro, maybe it's my headphones or like, maybe it's my phone. I'm not sure, but there was something a little weird with your audio last week. It's like always the most polite message. So yes, yeah. we were having some problems for the past couple of weeks with audio. Um, we think we have it figured out. I guess we'll find out. Um, but thank you for bearing with us. Yes, there were big, like whole phrases of words missing, um, or like parts of words and some stuff didn't make a lot of sense. Um, there's nothing we could do about it. I tried to like recover that. Uh, I'm not, I'm not up to that level of audio engineering yet. So, but thank you for bearing with us. Um, you know, this is like the thorns and thistles for modern, modern day people is weird technology issues. Let's just tell everybody the truth, Tony. We had to censor some of what you said. <laughs> it just couldn't, we couldn't keep it clean. We couldn't get that clean rating on iTunes Yeah, and keep what you said. So we had to, we had to censor it. See, now I'm going to go back and listen to this episode and I'm going to beep out random words of yours <laughs> and make it sound like you're cussing really bad. It's going to be pretty funny. That would be epic. Yeah. So why don't we get into our topic, Jesse? And this is another great topic that you propose. So why don't you why don't you intro this for us? So last week we spent a little time speaking about impeccability. And this week I thought it would be good to kind of look on the opposite side, so to speak, and talk about impassibility. So yes. why don't I'm gonna because I kind of introed it last week, I'm gonna take the liberty to ask you the question. So you're in an elevator, you've got 30 seconds. How would you define impassibility to somebody who was like, hey, what's impassibility? Yeah, this is actually a lot more complicated of a question than um, it may seem by just breaking down the words. (laughs) So the word impassibility basically means uh, the the attribute of God by which God is not able to suffer or God cannot be made to suffer. Um, But where this gets to be complicated is that classically speaking in theology, what we really what we really are saying is something along the lines that God is not subject to passions um, and in you know in modern language we don't really talk about passions the same way so sometimes we replace that with like emotions or feelings or something like that but it, it's actually kind of a deeper deeper 
and broader subject than just like emotions or suffering. You know, we think, well, of course God can't suffer. He doesn't have a body, but this extends to the idea that like God doesn't actually get angry. When we say like God is angry at sin, we're not saying that God, God observes sin and becomes angry as a result of sin. We're saying something, uh, completely different. And we'll find out we can't actually even explain what we're saying when we say God is angry at sin. So, so when we talk about God's uh, impassibility, what we're talking about is basically that God, because he is self-sufficient, he is say everything that God is, is he is from himself. Um, He cannot be changed or influenced or made to change um, from anything outside of himself. And we'll find out even even inside himself. It's not like he can change himself, so he can't even make himself to suffer. Right. That was pretty good. This is trickier than I think describing impeccability because yeah. there's kind of a really narrow road on this one, and we're going to find that language is really insufficient. But the impassibility is definitely concerned with God's will of disposition. Right. So the traditional doctrine of divine impassibility is going to state that God does not have passions. And I think we'll probably look to the confessions to kind of explain that a little bit. And therefore, he's not susceptible to being moved this way or that by some kind of external influence. And the point of the doctrine is not to deny that God interacts with his creatures. It's just to insist that God's interactions with his creatures are governed solely by his unchanging wisdom and goodness. So no external counselor... No external benefactor moves God to act and interact with his creatures in the way that he does. God acts and interacts with his creatures according to his impassable wisdom, goodness, and power. Yeah. Yeah. And so one thing that we have to remember is impassibility is also sort of like a subdivision of immutability. So you could have, um, I suppose you could have a concept of a, like an eternally suffering God. So you wouldn't have to have impassibility as a necessary function of immutability. But if you have a God that you affirm is complete in himself, which the the scripture does, then you can't have a God who is suffering as well. But so God cannot be made to suffer largely, I won't say primarily, but largely because God cannot be made to change. Um, And so we have this sort of sub subdivision of the doctrine of immutability that um, has some sort of strange entailments and some things that make it difficult to understand what's going on in scripture. So we should probably spend some time talking about that. Yeah, definitely. I think basically the idea of suffering is kind of the gateway into most people's discovery of impassibility. But from there, it spreads out into what do we mean? And what does the scripture mean? Like you said, when it says that God is angry or he repented, so to speak, or he turned, how do we understand those things? Or he was grieved, for instance. And is that incompatible with either the good news of the gospel or just, again, how we understand God himself to be one who is unchanging? Yeah. And in many ways, this is kind of the flip conversation of what we had last week. It is. So last week, we talked about how the union of the two natures in the single person of Christ made it such that it was impossible for that single person to suffer. And what we actually see in the incarnation when we talk about impassibility is precisely the opposite. So what we see is that the union of the two persons in the incarnation gives the son the ability to suffer that he did not previously possess. Right. And so our goal, hopefully, as always, is to avoid heresy because in the extremes, there's always error. But on one side, you have like the Patropassian heresy, which is the father suffers in the death of Christ. Right. And then I think the other end is like, I can never say this word because it's always like a mouthful for me, but it's like 
Theopacastist? Theopashite? Yes. Yeah. Which would be like the divine nature of Christ suffers and dies on the cross. So we're kind of bookended by these really extreme views. And we're obviously going to try to tend away from both of those. Yeah. And some of those that we'll we'll come back to them on heresy cast to talk about the flip side of them. Um, So what I think we should really focus on, at least for part of our conversation, is... um, the incarnation and how how impassibility right. in the incarnation functions, and then also diving into some of those some of those kind of sticky scriptures that we run into problems with with this doctrine. I like it. See, we don't even need an outline. It just I happens. I know it just it just happens. <laughs> so Jesse, I had a lot of questions come my way about a statement you made last week on the show about immutability. So the question's largely centered around, um, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go back and listen. But you made a um, you made a statement talking about the sinlessness of Christ and tying it to the immutability of Christ. Um, and you pointed out that in Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And some people um, some people read heard that and thought that you were saying that Jesus Christ as the incarnate man, Christ Jesus, does not change. Um, I don't think that that was what you were saying, but the people were wondering about that. So could you maybe follow up a little bit on that? And I think that'll kind of lead us into where we're going next with our conversation. Sure. And that's a great question. This is one of the joys of podcasting without a net, where we're (laughs) speaking back and forth and we're in good conversation. And that comment was specifically related to Hebrews 13.8. And I was speaking of the divine essence and nature of Christ himself, that there's a continuity in the fact that the Son, of course, exists eternally. He is given to us, as it talks about in Isaiah, like we, we spoke of last week, And but this child is, is born. And so there's this consistency of in before he was incarnate, we have Jesus Christ, who was preexistent. Then we have him in the incarnate form, and even in his divine nature, still he is immutable in some sense. And then, of course, we have Jesus risen and ascended. And even now, of course, he's in ministry before God's throne, which he's serving the churches and he's loving his covenant people. And so he is the same in all three of those states, according to his divine nature. Right. Does that make sense? It does. And so, so, um, what Jesse wasn't saying is that the, the human nature of Christ or, or more properly speaking, um, the son, according to his human nature, or as it, right. as it respects his human nature, he was not saying that the human nature does not change. So obviously, just on the face of it, Jesus at one point was a baby, and then at another point, he was an adult man. And there's all sorts of intervening periods of change in between there. Um, so, so this ties into what we're saying, because you know one of the things that I think people struggle with is the Bible seems to talk about... God, specifically like God the Father and God the Spirit, who never never have anything but the, the divine nature, but then sometimes seem to speak about Jesus, especially suffering um, in language that seems like God himself is suffering or like Jesus thinking about him as God is suffering. So I want to read something from um, Westminster Confession, chapter eight. Um, let me find it. Uh, here it is. It's article seven. It says, Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, 
That which is proper to one's nature is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So let me break that down a little bit. It's saying um, it had just got done going through basically Chalcedonian Christology, right? Two person or two natures, one person, not confused, not separable, um, not mixed and not uh, blended. And then it says this statement. So what it's saying is that one person who is Jesus Christ, the eternal Logos, the Son of God, all of the different titles we have in Scripture, that having two natures, he acts according to each nature. So that means that usually when he does something, he's doing it as one according to one or according to the other, and occasionally he does something according to both. But each nature only can act, he can only act according to each nature in a way which is proper to that nature. So, for example, the divine nature cannot change. And this is applicable directly to what we were just talking about with Hebrews 13.8. The divine nature cannot change, but the human nature can. Right. And so we can say that according to humanity, Christ is is not only mutable, meaning he could be changed, but Christ actually changes according to humanity. But according to divinity, Christ is immutable, and so he never changes whatsoever. And so this last sentence is explaining how Hebrews 13.8 can use um, the language of Jesus Christ, which properly speaking is a title or a name which he gains according to humanity, right? Jesus is the name that his mother gave him when he was born or when he was christened or whatever they call it in in Judaism, you know, the the naming ceremony that they use. Um, But that name, even though it is attributable to the human nature or to the person according to the human nature, the scripture still speaks of the one person by that nature, even when it's talking about an attribute possessed by the other. So we see this kind of thing, this sort of, I don't want to call it a confusion of language, but this sort of um, sharing of titles across right. across natures. We see that in all sorts of places in the scripture. And it's, it's really, really important in respect to the conversation we're having. Right. That's a great point. I like how you said that because the author of Hebrews, of course, is very specific in giving him the title of Jesus Christ. So it is both... It's representing the God-man. Like here is Jesus, you know, Joshua, the one who saves, but he is the anointed one. Right. And so I just think that's a that's a lovely verse. Yeah. Uh, I just, that's why I brought that up last week. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful verse. Yep. And one of the points of the book of Hebrews um, that, that I think is really important for Christians to remember is the author is trying to give his readers, um, or probably the the speaker was trying to give his listeners at the time, assurance of their salvation, assurance that if they stay, if they remain in the Christian faith, that they certainly and truly and completely will be saved. And so he appeals to the unchangeability of God in his covenant with Abraham to justify why that promise to his covenant people can never be forsaken. And so in this portion in Hebrews 13, 8, what he's saying is that same God, that very same God who cannot change, who is a steadfast anchor for our souls. That same God, even in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, is still unchangeable. Right. So so it's important when we you know every question sometimes I get questioned from people, you know, in the reform pub or I get them on my blog or emails or whatever. And there's a sort of a sticky question about Christology where they can't quite get it. And more often than not, simply reminding people that every question about Jesus is actually two questions about Jesus is is enough to help them navigate it. So the question, the two questions are, um, 
what does this say about human nature? What does this say about divine nature? Every statement about Jesus Christ has to be qualified in those two ways. And so sometimes when you look at a statement that doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense. If you say, well, is this statement talking about Christ according to human nature, or is it talking to him about divine nature? That's enough to kind of untangle that knot. That's a great point. It's a wonderful thing to be able to rely on a savior who is unchanging and a God who is immutable. And so that's that's naturally should lead us. If you uphold immutability, you're going to have to come to impassibility because what we're basically saying is that same sense of God unchanging means that he is not subject to passion. It's kind of a natural corollary right, right into this conversation. Yep. So Jesse, why don't we um, talk a little bit about um, the, the immutability or the impassibility of Christ and how, how do we understand that happening and how do we understand that working in relation to Jesus dying on the cross. We, we have like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, right. and we're, we're also at the same time saying that that suffering servant is not able to suffer. Right. Yeah. So here's, so let me back up a bit to try to like look at that question, because that, that is the question. And I think that when we're talking about understanding what that means, how it's given to us in the scriptures, I think a proper understanding of impassibility should not first lead us to think that God is unfeeling. Sometimes we tend to go in that direction when we talk about impassibility. Yeah. But his feelings, and I kind of would put those in quotation marks, are never passive. So of course, they don't come and go and change and fluctuate. They're actively, sovereignly directed dispensations or dispensations, dispositions, not dispensations, <laughs> um, rather than like passive reactions to external stimuli. So that may seem obvious, but I think we can begin to make sense of the doctrine of impassibility and this idea of suffering, but not being able to suffer only after we concede the utter impossibility of comprehending the mind of God. So right. I think we need to recognize that the Bible is going to use a lot of anthropomorphisms, even in the sense of trying to express emotion. And since our thoughts are not like God's thoughts, you know, his thoughts must be described to us in human terms that we can understand. Like that, that famous phrase that Calvin uses that God speaks to, speaks to us like a nurse speaks to a child. Right. And I think that's plainly true when we start to get into this conversation. So many vital truths about God cannot be expressed except through these figures of speech that accommodate the limitations of human language and understanding. So I think what's part to answer your question, not to delay too much, is just that part of this is, is an anthropomorphism. And right. it, it, we have to mine that for the meaning. So while it's true that there are figures of speech we still must acknowledge that those expressions, that idea of suffering, they do mean something. And I think most often they're, they're reassurances to us that God is not uninvolved or indifferent to his creation, that there is a real sacrifice that's taking place there, that there is a real identifying with humankind, with the God-man experiencing in some real sense what it is like to be human and what it's like to be separated from God and to receive the full wrath of God in punishment for all sin. Right. But we do need to recognize that at the same time it's metaphorical. And that is to confess that they, there are things that they do not mean. And they do not mean that God is, again, literally subject to mood swings or melancholy or spasms or passion of temper tantrums. So I think we, that's like the first kind of set of lenses that we need to look through. And I think that's what I often see people miss is we either just run in one direction or the other in trying to explain how God suffers or why God does not suffer. It's, it's something of a little bit of both in the sense that we know that God is identifying with us. We know that what he is doing is real and deliberate and by the counsel of his will, and that it is not play acting, that there is a real sacrifice that's happening here. But at the same time, we just need to kind of step back and say, we're only going to be able to go so far on this because our language is like woefully, not just insufficient, but inappropriate yeah. to really try to comprehend or articulate what God is doing here. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, it's it's important for us to remember that in a certain sense, all of the language that we speak about God is anthropomorphism. Because um, you know, it was I, I read it the first time I came across this in a way that really sort of struck me was reading James Dalzal's book about sim- divine simplicity. And the reason is because he talked about how the reason we have such a difficult time explaining God's simplicity is because all that we have to do it with is composite language. Right. So so it, the very fact that I have to use a sentence that's made of several parts to tie to describe a God that is made of no parts, there's already like a dis- disconnect between our language and God. And so even when we, even when we're saying true things about God, those true things that we're saying are already translated things into our creaturely language. And so just like when you translate from any language to any other language, something is lost in the meaning. There's something that gets left behind, um, whether it's an actual, like a linguistic feature that gets left behind or like a flavor of culture or something like that. Um, that, um, that is a reality. And so when, when the scripture speaks about God in ways we're talking about, like God in the old Testament, prior to the incarnation, divine nature, only God, this, the scriptures frequently talk about God as though he was suffering, as though he was right. grieved or angry. And we shouldn't think of those things as God is actually angry or God is actually grieved. What we should think about those things is that the scripture is using our language in a way that we can understand to describe something true about God. And, and when we say the scripture, what we mean is God is saying something to us using our language in a way that we can understand. Um, but it's, you, you know, a, health, a, a, a helpful way to think about this is when I say I am angry at the dog for going to the bathroom on the floor, right? That, that's not saying somehow that like in the very essence of my being, I have become angry right. as a exactly. result of what I'm saying is that there's some external feature, some some um, some accidental property that I've taken on, usually temporarily in response to a given circumstance. When we say that God is angry, we either are saying God has become something he wasn't, which we know we can't say because of immutability, or what we're saying is that God is something, and and that something interacts with a certain, with reality, a certain way. So, so when we say God is angry, we're actually saying that this is a permanent immutable feature of the singular, simple God. And that because of who that God is, that his, his interaction with a certain thing is a certain way. So we, we have to remember that God does not take on new states. He doesn't take on new states of emotion, new states of being. None of that stuff happens in God. So everything that is in God is God and always eternally is and was God. So that has to always govern all of our language and discussions about immutability and impassibility. That is the critical point. That is the really nuanced difference that's not splitting hairs. And I can see why, even if you look over the Reformed landscape, both in the contemporary sense and a historical one, there's lots of little shades on this because I think people have been convicted in different ways about how strongly they need to articulate the point you just made. This difference between having accidental or some kind of external or exogenous influence that changes a response or creates an emotional chain of events versus having something being born out of character or essence of being. So I can see why, for instance, Calvin like consistently affirmed that God does not in any sense have passions. 
not just that God has emotions that are different from ours that are not sinful, but he, he was really adamant that God had no passions whatsoever. Right. And he would say even like the biblical descriptions of anger and grief to God should be read as metaphorical. And I get that because properly speaking, the biblical descriptions to God of wrath really refer to one of two things. One, God's immutable, eternal, essential characteristic of justice, whereby he wills to give each one his due, or the temporal events of punishment, which he brings about accordingly because of that will. So those are like, that's a totally different thing than just saying like, like you said, I got angry because this happened to me. Um, It's a totally different uh, point of origin. Right. And so the reason why Calvin would not properly ascribe anger, grief to God, even in the non-passional sense in which he describes, ascribes love to him is that anger and grief essentially involve a disruption of his perfect blessedness and joy. Right. So that's where we have to be careful. Like when we say, well, even when people say like, well, God of the Old Testament is really angry. That that always just makes me bristle because not yeah. only is that wrong in so many ways, but we're, we're moving away from the simplicity of God to say like, well, in that particular environment, because of what people were doing, he was angry with them. Right. And so he, there we have God being controlled in a sense, if only emotionally, by something outside of himself, which is not the God of the Bible. Right. Yeah, and so, you know, when we're talking about this, this is one of those areas that I, it pains me to say this, but this is not something that you can always depend on a Reformed commentator to be good on. Right. Um, you know, some of this, and we'll, we'll get to it, but some of this ties into the same R.C. Sproul quote that we talked about last week, um, is that there, there's a certain element of R.C. Sproul's Christology that doesn't handle this correctly. But in, you know, in contemporary times, we have people like um, John Frame, people like Scott Oliphant, who want to argue, and, you know, if we get outside of um, outside of reform thinkers, people like William Lane Craig, um, Wayne Grudem, who's who's sort of reformed, takes on this stance that's sometimes called theistic mutualism. But basically, what it what it's doing is it's compromising the doctrine of impassibility to try to explain how it is that God has a relationship with us or relates to us. Um, without being changed by us. And so they postulate this weird third category of like covenantal properties or um, John Frame will actually say that God is unchanging in a changeable sort of way, which is, uh, he loves to say incoherent things and then (laughs) pretend that they're coherent just because he said them. It's nonsensical. But but when we get there, you know, you have to be really careful because some of this stuff, you you don't even know you're running into it until you're already, you know, knee deep in it. And then, you know, it's like quicksand, you can't get out. Um, And some of this stuff has made its way into resources like the ESV study Bible, following right on the heels of the uh, ESF controversy stuff. So you really have to be careful what you're appropriating. And that's why it's so important and why we always try, you won't hear us quote a lot of other theologians on this show. And that's because we're constantly trying to go back to the Reformed confessions or in situations like this, we may even try to go further back to the, you know, to the classic creeds of the church and then show how those things are accurate and clear distillations of scripture. But the problem with, with, you know, modern systematic theologies is that that's a private opinion of a private individual right? where, where the confessions are ecclesiastical documents that were usually drafted in committee 
and have stood the test of time of being assessed and evaluated in light of scripture and by and large have not been changed. So it's important to remember that just because someone teaches at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not a person who's afraid of naming names, right? Scott Oliphant's covenant theology, his covenant properties thesis is not a reformed or even a biblical position. So just because he teaches at a a good reformed seminary does not mean that what he's saying is classic, even classically reformed, let alone biblical. Right. Let me just say this because this sometimes, I don't know if you get this, but this, I sometimes get this in response either to our conversations or just chatting with somebody one-on-one. And that is, there's an objection that's put forward sometimes that we go too quickly to the confessions. Yeah. And to that, I would say, I'm never using the confessions as evidence for proof. Right. They are a summary of the evidence that is present in the scriptures. And of course, always drives us back to that. They do stand the test of time because like you said, they're drafted generally by a group and they're basically vetted in a sense right. in this kind of pu- very public way, both ac- across history, but especially when they were conceived. And so just so that nobody thinks that we're coming with this idea out of left field, if you just go to chapter two, article one of the Westminster Confession, which is titled Of God and of the Holy Trinity, the first sentence there is, there is but one holy, living, and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. So it's, yeah. it's right there, straight up. And I would say that perhaps most evangelicals would agree probably immediately that God has no body. They might be a little bit perplexed over whether he has parts, and they would probably deny that he has no passions, only because there's an argument that's like this. Hey, passions are the same as emotions, right? And love is an emotion, and God is love. So ergo, God has passions. And what about God's passion for his glory? After all, isn't that God having passions? So that's why this is a relevant conversation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And- you know, I want to pivot and turn the corner a little bit and start to talk about the incarnation because the impassibility, you know, the as I said earlier, the suffering servant is is like the quintessential description of the ministry of Christ, right? Isaiah 53 is all about how the coming Messiah would suffer on behalf of his people and in the place of his people, and because of that suffering would um, obtain forgiveness of sins and a share in the inheritance of God for his people. Right. So so a lot of times the critique is leveled and and you know Peter Lightheart comes to mind that if if we look at Jesus the suffering servant on the cross and we somehow say that God the father is not like that then how do we how do we understand that Jesus Christ reveals the father to us? Um and the problem right. with that is that 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 argument totally misses the the whole point of the hypostatic union. And the, the point of the hypostatic union, when, it was, when that doctrine was being clarified by the early church fathers, was to preserve both the full human suffering of Jesus Christ, but also the classical doctrine of immutability of, of God. Because, you know, I, I don't understand why people want to jettison the immutability of God. Uh, I, I can't think of any way that people would make a God in their own image any more than that. And I, I don't understand, you know, like we said, Hebrews roots our assurance in the unchangeability of not just God, of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, so it's like the, the author of Hebrews is saying, like in all caps, like shaking his hands like John Piper, that the incarnation does not make God mutable or passable. Like that's, right. that's one of the main points in the way that he uses the language. And we seem to just jettison that because it's, frankly, because it's easier to think about a God who changes because that God is more like us. Yes. 
Yes, you're right on. It's easier to say, well, it makes more sense for God to have emotions like me that I can somehow enforce or plead before him and get him to change his mind. And part of that is because we read about, we read that kind of language in the scriptures without understanding how it should be. It's like a leaf that's disconnected from the tree. We need to understand how that leaf connects to the theological underpinnings of the entire scriptures, the full counsel of God's word, as opposed to just taking it out of context and saying, well, didn't Abraham change God's mind because of what happened on the hilltop beyond Sodom and Gomorrah? And and on the surface, I can understand why people would come to that conclusion. But that is divorcing that text from what we understand about the whole character of God. Right. And an adequate account of God's character, this is what's so beautiful, an adequate account of God's character must involve both his transcendence and his eminence. So in the sense, divine passion must include both of those elements. So we have God's essential impassibility is an aspect of his transcendence, but God's passionate engagement with his creation, and particularly with his covenant people, is, is an aspect of his eminence. And in Jesus Christ, we get both. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and that example is interesting because that that example, along with um, Moses interceding for the Israelites, those examples, um, they drive me nuts because they, you miss the entire point of the narrative <laughs> right, right. if you make it about Abraham changing his mind or changing God's mind. Because right. think about this. If, if that thesis is true, if Abraham really changed his mind, then what we have is a God who was willing to destroy the righteous in order to punish the guilty. And Abraham right. somehow has a higher standard of justice and consider c- convinces God to follow his standard of justice. So you lose the not just not just the immutability of God if you compromise there. You lose the entire character of God as the just God, right? right. Abraham says, "Will not the will not the Lord of will not the God of justice do what is right?" Right? Well, the answer right. to the the answer is, of course he will. So, and Abraham understood this. I don't think that this was um, Abraham is functioning as a prophet here. I don't think, I mean, there's probably an element of him actually trying to bargain and stuff, but, but the fact is the real point of that story, and this is what's so beautiful about it, is what we have God saying is for the sake of one righteous person or for the sake, in in that instance, for the sake of the five righteous, I will save the whole unrighteous lump. Well, what does that point us to? It saves us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus Christ, the immutable yet suffering God who for the sake of the one righteous man, many were saved, right? So instead of, instead of looking at this and using it as a counterexample of immutability, it's actually an example of mediatorial redemption. And, right and the fact is that even though Lot was, Lot is called righteous later in scripture, but even though Lot was not righteous in a, a strict sense, there were still people on the plane who were saved merely because Lot was in the area. So the whole town of Zor was not destroyed simply because Lot was there. So, so any of those instances where we see God appearing to change his mind, right? Nineveh is another example, right? He goes and, and the people repent and he doesn't, he doesn't destroy the city. And Jonah's all mad because he said he was going to destroy the city. And he actually tries to justify why he didn't want to go to the city because he knew that right. if they repented, God would change, would relent of the disaster he intended to bring. Well, what is that, what is that a picture of? It's not a picture of a, some sort of feeble, fickle God who changes with the whims of humanity. It's a, it's a picture of a God who immutably has determined that those who repent will be saved. Right. And so that comes forward into, into the New Testament for all of us. Because if, if, if the way that Jonah wanted things to go down in Nineveh went down for us, then we would all be condemned to hellfire. 
But instead, the immutable God has immutably decreed out of his immutable character that all who repent and trust in Jesus Christ will surely be saved. That is a beautiful, beautiful truth. And if we lose the immutability of God, then there's nothing saying that God might not change his mind tomorrow or decide not to not to apply that standard the next day. That's a terrifying thought. It is. But I think when you look at those two examples of Jonah and Abraham, I think what we see, kind of like you said, is they're actually, I think, appealing or at least acknowledging that God is immutable. Right. Like, I think that's what Abraham is basically saying. That's why he brings up the whole thing about, well, the God of justice, not save one righteous person. And even Jonah admits, like, this is, he gets upset because he's like, this is what I thought. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and would grant repentance to those who humbled themselves. So what we actually see represented there is far from just like this sense of like complete bargaining. Because I've actually heard sermons where they made a big deal about like, this is you know, the, the cultural equivalent of like going to like a yard sale and here you see Abraham really impressing upon God and using a technique for garnering additional value and worth. And that's what he's doing here. I think he's really appealing to God's immutable character, especially right. in his emotions. Like here he knows who, this is one who is consistent and in his constancy is not going to be subject to some kind of whim right. as we are. Like there's great, there's great joy in that. Why would we want to get rid of that thing? Yeah. To, to make God subject to whims like we are, or even that he is, he might change how he feels and therefore out of that feeling react to us in a way that would be contrary to his character. Right. This is the same thing for me as when sometimes people who get a little bit overzealous about trying to express, I think, redemption will say something like, well, you see how God took the cross and he made it something amazing. He didn't have to turn it around. This yeah. was like his immutable will the, the full counsel of, of what he desired coming into reality from eternity past. There was no plan B. This was plan A. He didn't have to turn right. anything around. Yeah. He was using it from the very beginning because he is not passionate in the same way that we are. And yeah. so there, like, what could be better than having, having someone, I say someone though, that's a really horrible way to express God's reality, his eternal essence and being. But how great is it to have a source of power in your life, a firm rock to stand on that is emotionally secure. Yeah. Because, you know, like I'll say I love cheese and I love my wife and I'm using the same word. And clearly there is something in that use of that word, even something as serious as love that for me can be driven by emotion. Like when I'm not feeling well, I don't love cheese. Right. Uh, but when, you know, I feel great or I want a piece of pizza, yeah, I love cheese. Yeah. So it it's just great to have to know that God is immutable, not just like in his character, but practically speaking, in the way that he approaches his covenant people, yeah. that he's both identifying with us, but is not subject to some kind of exogenous force that changes how he feels such that he changes how he relates to us. Yeah. That that constancy, I just I'm not saying it well enough. It's just yeah. a wonderful thing. It is. It's beautiful. So we're, we're going to be coming up on time real quick. And so before we move on to, to anything else, I want to make sure we say clearly and explain clearly how it is that Christ suffers yet is still God, because this is a yes, question that I'm sure comes up after a conversation like that. And and the short the short answer of the story, and, and it'll be helpful if people go back and listen to the various Christology episodes we've done, but the short answer is that um, in taking on a second human nature, a second nature, which is a human nature, the son takes on an entire new way to exist. So he existed eternally and it existed in the past tense isn't even the right way to say it, but he exists eternally and unchangeably as God and all that that entails. 
in the incarnation, he takes on a new second nature. And with that nature, he gains a host of abilities that, um, that are added to him. And so he adds this nature to himself. He gains the ability to um, be present in one place at one time, right? He gains, gains the attribute of localized presence, which we may, sometimes we think of as a, a restriction, but either way, you can think of it either way. He's able to be present in one place at one time and, and to extend through space. He's able to have um, only experiential knowledge in, in his human mind, in his human nature. Um, and one of the things he takes on is the ability or limitation to change. And with that ability to change comes the ability to suffer. Now we have to remember, because this is important, because it's not as though taking on that ability, somehow he releases his, his sovereign providential control of the universe. Right. So, so when Christ says, and, and I've run into people who say this, that Christ, Christ only died because he let himself die. It wasn't a function of any sort of limitation in the human nature. And that is just rank heresy, right? That's docetism. But because, because Christ does not release his sovereign control, he still can say with integrity that he, no one takes his life from him. He lays it down. So, so acting according to divinity, Christ sovereignly allows himself to be killed. He sovereignly allows Pilate to sentence him to death. He sovereignly allows the, the um, Roman soldiers to nail him to the cross. He sovereignly allows his human spirit to be ripped from his human body and separated. But he's not in control of that, humanly speaking. It's not as though he somehow had some special human power to control death. Um, but the ability to suffer... The ability to suffer without without diminishing his divinity is a function of a second, distinct, unblended nature. So that's why that's why the Chalcedonian definition is so important. That that idea that the nature is taken on inseparably, meaning it's not like he puts his nature down at some later point, but right. also taken on um, in in an unmixed fashion or an unconfused fashion, means that each nature retains the unique properties of each nature, and the person. The person is all of those qualities simultaneously. And that's, that's where we get this. That's the answer to the question of how can Jesus suffer and still be God? Um, it's not some sort of redefinition of, of suffering, which is sometimes what happens. Um, it's not that the suffering was illusory. Which that's docetism. It's not right. that, um, that the human nature somehow um, gets swallowed up into the divine. So the suffering is real, but it's so minuscule compared to the divine nature that it doesn't do anything. That's Eutychianism, right? The human nature fully, completely suffers or Jesus in his human nature fully and completely suffers the exact same way that you or I would suffer if we were nailed to the cross. If anything, suffers more because, right. because of the, the knowledge that he had that it was coming, the anticipation of it. It's possible that we could say he even suffers more because he, he knows prophetically all that is going to happen, all that it entails. And then spiritually he suffers as the covenant servant who is taking on the curses of the covenant of, of great of uh, the covenant of works. So I know that that was a quick, dirty kind of thing. We'll probably have to come back to it in another episode where we talk about just that, but I want to make sure we got it out there. And if that's not clear and you want more, feel free to call us for a questions cast or send us an email. We'll be happy to, to touch on it again. And that's one of the reasons I prefer the language truly God and truly man to fully God and fully yes. man. Yeah. Because that little distinction is helpful in, the use of fully just gets us all torn up on our, in our minds of thinking about components and parts and right. how can something be more than 100%, but truly emphasizes that 
like you said, it's not illusionary. What what God did there through his son, Jesus Christ, was an actual experience of human pain and grief. And that's yeah. for real. It, it's not as if he's putting on a mask or just pretending. And so I think that that's something we have to remember, that we see Christ in the garden, that suffering that he's preparing to undergo. In many ways, I agree with you because I think that the suffering that he undertakes on our behalf is more than we can possibly experience because basically through the death of Christ, we get a promise that Christ himself didn't even have. And that was that we will never be left or forsaken. Right. And so we have even on the cross there, Jesus bearing the entire sin of the world. I mean, when he's in suffering in the garden, I don't think it's just a matter of he is worried about death. I mean, I think that's part of it, perhaps just in the sense of his human nature. But many people since Jesus Christ have gone to their deaths happily right. in, in defense of the gospel. We have here Jesus, like you said, in a prophetic sense, understanding that he's about to be separated, I think, from God the Father, which is something that he's never experienced before. Yeah. So it, it boggles my mind to think about the hypostatic union generally, but specifically to understand how all those implications play out, for instance, in that just that little scene in the garden. What's happening? Yeah. What's going through Christ's mind? That he is suffering like you and I, and at the same time, there is this confluence of his divine nature. And these are contrarieties, not contradictions. So they coalesce together. And that's why he is truly man and truly God, the best representative, the exact representative and mediator that we needed so that we could be given all of the spiritual blessings that we forfeited when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. I mean, this is, I just get so pumped up talking to you because (laughs) it's the gospel is so incredible. And everywhere we turn, there's all, there's often the charge laid at either our feet or just generally for those who are interested in theology or have a kind of a pension or a turn of mind for the an interest in this kind of thing that is just disconnected yeah. from practical obedience and piety. And I actually find that the longer we end up talking, the more I just want to get on my knees and humble myself before the Lord yeah. and praise him for what he has done for me and how it's so abundantly clear that there is nothing that I can achieve on my own. And apart from him, I have no good thing. Yeah. And impassibility leads me there just as often as any other really large, big worded, smart sounding theological topic. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of close on that note, what, one of the things sort of the, the um, I don't know if you want to call it like a saying or like a proverb, but one of the things that I've picked up on over the years of doing theology is that... Um, the person you need to be the most afraid of in theology is the person who is not driven to praise or to piety by their theological pursuits. Mm. And the reason for that is that the difference between a theologian who's driven to piety in their theological pursuits and a difference uh, between the theologian who is not is that the theologian who really loves God and is studying the object of his affection is driven to further affection and to praise for that object of their study. The theologian who is not driven to further affection, um, nine out of 10 times, that person's not even a Christian. They may have all of the right pieces in place outwardly, but at the end of the day, um, I don't know how you can study the, the creator of the universe and not be driven to worship. It's just as simple as that. And immutability for me and impassibility as a corollary for me is one of those doctrines that just as the, the author of Hebrews intended it in his discourse, it drives me to find assurance in the Lord. 
because as as changing as Christ was according to his human nature, he is and was and always ever will be the same yesterday, today, and forevermore according to his divine nature. And so we, we not only have a God who never changes that we can trust, but we have a mediator and a savior who never changes that we can trust. And to me, that right is on. just a beautiful thing that... You know, it makes it makes sense to me why when Paul is writing his his letters that he just sort of stops and has to praise when he kind of comes to these summit points in, in doctrine and is forced over the edge of doctrine into doxology. It's just these beautiful moments of praise. I mean, can you imagine that? Because even just in our dialogue, I often end up there. Like after yeah. we finish this, again, as you heard me say before, I just want to run through a wall. I'm just so <laughs> pumped up. I would like and to I see you do that. Listen, I'm about to Kool-Aid man this and go right through a wall after this particular conversation. And it's often made me think, like you said, Paul interrupts even like his own discourse as he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine? Here's somebody that I imagine is writing, of course, in he's using his own intellect as is empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I imagine like he's dictating, he's writing, and he doesn't even foresee that he's about to be overwhelmed right. by what's a, what he's about to you know say. It's incredible. And I think if that's how you and I are interacting right now, can you imagine if like the Apostle Paul, someone was being carried along by the Holy Spirit, being given the very word of God. So this is amazing stuff. I hope that we don't sound like particularly crazy and that people can get a sense for like (laughs) the excitement in our voices that this isn't just about, you know, talking about really kind of cool sounding things, but that impassibility is, I, I like the word you used, assurance. Yeah. And in a world that is decidedly not sure, it's wonderful to know that uh, we have in Christ the assurance. And by virtue of that, I think one of the spiritual benefits we have is that only in Christ do we have the freedom where we can let our mind, by being transformed by the Word of God, take our emotions into captivity and subjection such that we are not ruled by them. That only exists in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And it exists because He is impassable. Right. And so because of that, he grants to us, at least in a, in a lesser sense, in a more finite sense, the ability to take those passions under control as so many of the New Testament writers charge us to do. Yep. So if you if we want to take the Bible for what it says at its face value with that charge, that imperative, then we must also bring along the indicative that all of that energy, all of that empowerment comes from Jesus Christ himself yeah. through God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit applying it in our lives. Yeah. Well, that's as good a place to end it as anywhere else. So if you found this episode um, helpful or edifying or whatever, um, we would love it if you would share uh, the episode with a friend. Um, You can do that in a whole variety of ways. And we don't ask for this very often because it doesn't really matter, but it would be nice if you went and did a review on iTunes um, just because, you know, it doesn't change how readily we show up in the search ratings, but someone who sees a show on Reformed Theology that has five stars um, is more likely to listen to it than one that has like two or three. So right. we would love it if you'd help us get the word out even more. Our, our audience has entirely grown by word of mouth. We've spent like less than $30 on any sort of promotional material whatsoever. But um, we really appreciate when people share our episodes, and especially because it turns out that most of the time when people are sharing it, they're sharing it because our episode fills a particular need that they have to share the gospel with someone or to share, answer a theological question um, or somebody needs encouragement. So it's, it's cool for us to hear the stories of the people you've been sharing the episodes with. And we love it when you do that. 
Yeah, please do that. If if this has been helpful to you in either your walk or just opening conversation, we'd love to hear that because you can use us as like the weird excuse. Like if there's something that you've been wanting to talk about, like in your small group or with a friend, you could be like, hey, listen to these yahoos talk about this subject. And then you could be like, oh, by the way, we should talk about that. There the are people There are people that I know of who have shared our episodes with their small group leader to try to spark a conversation about a particular topic. Excellent. Yeah. Or, you know, if, if I just say something that you think, wow, that was really weird. What the heck did Jesse mean by that? Yeah. Like when you said that grace was injected into us. <laughs> why, why are you going to bring that back up? Why does that have to come back up? All right. Well, we'll, we'll end out here. Don't forget that we're running a contest for that NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. Uh, there's six copies to give away, and we're going to run it through the end of um, October. We'll do the drawing on uh, November 1st and announce it on the next episode. So you have until Reformation Day to get your entry in. You can do that at reformbrotherhood.com slash contest. And until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.